You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Nancy Krieger, professor of social epidemiology in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences and director of the Interdisciplinary Concentration on Women, Gender, and Health. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday, May 11th. I am very grateful to be speaking with you as journalists. Uh, I just want to say that the work of journalism in reporting on what's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic and its uh, social antecedents and consequences has been absolutely vital. The I am in awe of how journalists have been bringing data to the forefront, often before uh, the standard health agencies would do so. And so I just want to start with an actual thank you. Um, I think that the work of the Fourth Estate here is being absolutely uh, superb in keeping the public informed and in an effort to try to keep things safe and to try to prevent further harm. So that's where I start. And what I just want to say first around the study with the globe is that this actually was a true collaboration with the globe because as a epidemiologist who's been involved for a very long time in working with health departments, uh, cancer registries, and other such agencies to improve monitoring of health inequities, I've been aware for quite some time of ways to make the data talk, to tell the stories that need to be told about the inequities and distributions. And inequities means, by the way, very explicitly, uh, differences in health status between social groups that are unfair, preventable, and, and, um, and avoidable. And so these count, uh, what we're seeing with regard to COVID-19. And so what I was aware of was that there were not adequate data being reported about the health inequities for COVID-19 in this country, not only at the CDC website, but also uh, at many of the state and local levels as well. So what I did was reach out to the GLOBE because I saw that they were getting data from the Massachusetts Department of Public Health that were not easily being released. And we worked together whereby they, as they report in their article, were able to obtain the data and then my team and I actually analyzed them. And what we did in this particular study was to use a technique that others are also beginning to use, but we're the first to do it at the local level in terms of city, town, and also uh, zip code. Uh, and we did it just for Massachusetts, whereby we looked at what the rates for, and I emphasize rates, not counts, I'll come back to this, what the mortality rates per 100,000 person years were for the period in two week intervals, starting in January through the middle of April, and compare that to the historical average for the past five years, so 2015 to 2019, and to simply look and see what was the total age standardized mortality rate in the 2020 two-year week period versus the comparable period for 2015 to 2019. The point about using rates and not counts is that rates are per 100,000 person years it take, and they're age standardized. It takes into account the age structure of the populations being compared and it takes into account the size of the population and it takes into account the time interval. If you just count deaths, obviously a bigger place could potentially have more deaths with the exact same death rate as a smaller place just because it's larger. If you have a place that has a lot more older people compared to a place with a lot more younger people, but the same size population, it could have more counts of deaths just because of the differences in the age structure. 
So when you're comparing rates across time, across place, and across social groups, you need to use age standardized rates. And these have hardly been reported anywhere in any of the publications or websites that have data from the national to local level that you'll find in the US right now. Rates are core to epidemiology. It's about population distributions. And these are the distributions. It's the cases by the, in relation to the population from which they arise, the denominators. What we did in our study was that we could quickly look with their data at the residential address that included the zip code and city town. And then we could make measures of the city town and the zip code characteristics. We looked at ones that are particularly important for understanding health inequities. These include first, the percent of crowded households. Household crowding is a function of a lack of living wage combined with a lack of affordable housing. It's not a fault of the individuals themselves. Secondly, we looked at the percent of the population below the poverty line. Third, we looked at the percent of people that are people of color. And also, we looked at another measure that I've helped develop, called, uh, which gets at racialized economic segregation. Because the geographic distribution of people is obviously not random. Neighborhoods are sorted in relation to economic conditions and also who lives there in terms of racial ethnic popula population. That's composition has a long history in relation to easily trace back to the uh, historical redlining in the 1930s. I'm happy to speak more about that. We have two studies about to come out, one in the American Journal of Public Health that will be out later this month, uh, probably April 21st, online advanced access, looking at historical redlining in New York City in relation to preterm birth, and another paper that will soon be out in the American Journal of Epidemiology on current cancer stage of diagnosis in relation to historical redlining. I bring that up because I wanna be emphasizing that these population distributions of, of areas, city towns and zip codes within them is historically conditioned by, situ, by the systems that we have in this United States that involve inequities around both racism and class structure and where people live and where they work. And this is everything to do with who's at greater risk of dying from COVID-19. So in this study, what we found comparing the 2020 rates in the two week time periods compared to the historical average of 2015 to 2019 was that in the last time period that we looked at the first two weeks of April, which was the most recent data that we could get, the rates everywhere were surging, but they surge much more among people, communities with higher proportions of people of color, below the poverty line, in crowded housing, and with adverse racialized economic segregation. The report gives you the numbers. I don't need to say them again. I'd be happy to send you additional follow-up. We have a link to the working paper, which gives all the detailed tables, so you can see more data than you ever might want to see. <laughs> that will give the background to the uh, graphs that the GLOBE produced. So these are the descriptive data, but they're descriptive data that tell a powerful story. And then the question that you have to ask when you see data like this is why? Why do we see these distributions? These distributions when we're getting at total deaths, and by the way, the other thing I'd like to flag is the reason we looked at total deaths and not just what are called COVID-19 deaths is twofold. One, the work is fast progressing on understanding what counts and who counts as a COVID-19 death. There's new papers being published every day about different ways in which the virus 
SARS-CoV-2 is actually attacking different organ systems in people's bodies. People are understanding now what should be called a COVID-19 death, and that's gonna probably continue to change over time with greater knowledge. This is a standard technique, especially when the case definition is changing, to look at the total surge in mortality compared to the year prior for the same time period. And that also, of course, by the way, takes into account any seasonal or temporal concerns. So I can uh, stop there for questions about the particular study, or I can offer a little bit more interpretation, and perhaps maybe I should do this, regarding why we see the trends that we do. Noting that this is science happening quickly in real time, but it's very clear that you have to break down what the cascade of events is. Who is exposed? Who is vulnerable to becoming infected if exposed? Who, if infected, actually becomes ill? Who becomes seriously ill? Who dies? And this has everything to do with the conditions in which people are living and working and what their health status is at the time of being exposed and potentially getting ill. And I think a key thing to make clear is that although the initial introduction of the SARS-CoV-2 to this country came from people who could clearly travel uh, and take airplane flights, what's happened since is the domestic transmission that absolutely breaks down where there's greater concentrations amongst people that are being exposed because they are essential workers who need to work. They are predominantly lower income, people of color. They are people who do not have paid sick leave. They are people who have been not provided with adequate protect, personal protective equipment on the job. And they are people who are the ones that we're seeing also living in likely more crowded conditions, again, because of problems of affordable housing and what the wages are. And, that's, and then these are people who are also, even before SARS-CoV-2 turned up, were compromised in health status by the persistent health inequities that we have in this country. And these comorbidities, particularly in relation to different kinds of chronic disease, are a problem. And that seems to be intersecting to increase the risk of death. And this is a separate question also from the nursing home situation here in Massachusetts, which we can come to later. But the last thing that I would like to flag that's really important in understanding this notion of comorbidity and pre-existing conditions is that typically it's been framed in the media, again, looking at national averages. National averages are only that, averages in a really big country. That age 60 that people are talking about, age 60 doesn't always equal age 60. There is well-documented research about effectively what you could consider to be accelerated aging, or let's put it this way, premature morbidity and mortality by economic position and race ethnicity in this country, where the same diseases, particularly cancers of many types, also cardiovascular disease, the two leading causes of death, occur at earlier ages in populations that have been subjected to economic deprivation and to racial discrimination. So to be age 60 in one population group that's been more privileged is not the same as being age 60 in another group that has not had this privilege. And therefore, what we're also seeing is not only the fact of COVID-19 deaths, but deaths at earlier ages amongst these groups. So that, I think, is very important background to give to the data that we share in our paper. Thank you, Dr. Krieger. First question. Thank you, doctor, for doing this. Appreciate it. Um, I'm curious, what needs to happen to, to change this? And is, can anything happen quickly enough to if not to stem this tide that's happening? So one, I think that I can offer some views as a social epidemiologist, but note that there are people that have expertise in communications because communication needs to be improved and also in doing the place-based health interventions that are required. 
But what is what I can say that our data do show are that there needs to be attention paid to these communities which are being most afflicted. That means attention in terms of pop-up testing, making sure that testing is available in these communities, making sure that the testing is available in the right languages, is in a way that is non-threatening, that addresses the fears of people, particularly if there are people who have undocumented status, that being tested is vital, that if people are tested and are being tested and found to be positive, if they are living in crowded housing, to make additional facilities available, as is occurring, for example, at the Hotel in Revere right now, where people can go if they can't self-isolate within their own households. That's really important. These are all things that are in the realm of policy to do, to make sure that if people are in any group that is considered to be an essential worker, that it is also equally essential that their job provide personal protective equipment. Thank you. Uh, next question. Uh, hi, Professor Krieger. Um, is there a chance that COVID, um, like uh, diabetes and obesity, um, as kind of society uh, addresses it, um, becomes uh, something of a disease of uh, the poor or the marginalized? Um, not that that has fully happened with diabetes and obesity, but I think the trends are in that direction. Um, I, you know, with a, an infectious disease, I, I don't know if that's even possible, but just wondered your thoughts on that. Well, but it is very possible with infectious disease. I can tell you two off the top of my head, tuberculosis and HIV AIDS. And what's important around HIV AIDS is that it had similar trends around what happened with class dynamics in this country and others, where it started out amongst more affluent people and then quickly became concentrated amongst people without the resources for adequate testing and adequate control. So there's a different conversation because it's a different kind of transmission. But with tuberculosis, absolutely. Tuberculosis, if you look at the history of tuberculosis, you will see, and it's killing many people, millions every year around the world, is concentrated amongst people who are with fewer economic resources. So yes, this could potentially happen with COVID-19, but the thing is, is getting back to the issue of both transmission and the nature of these essential workers who actually do also inter end up interacting with the people who are uh, otherwise more protected, it's not clear to me that it's gonna be quite so simple to keep it totally contained. So, but there will be two different things that play out. One is again, what is the extent of exposure and who is exposed and who becomes infected versus how severe will the illness be? And the thing about how severe the illness will be is that if that is intersecting with people's pre-existing health conditions, then that will lead to a worsening mortality rate amongst people that are already badly off, even if everyone is similarly infected. So it's important to break your question down into the different components of who gets infected, who becomes ill if infected, and who dies if become ill. Very good, thank you. Next question. Um, <clears throat> hello, Professor. Uh, I have a question about kids. Uh, currently, we saw quite a lot of Kawasaki disease cases occurring in New York, and we also see it uh, has happened in other states and countries. Uh, and some kids with this disease are tested positive for the coronavirus. And uh, so my question is, uh, how can we protect the children in this special situation? And do we need uh, like a much wider test for kids? 
You ask a good question, and actually that's um, one that goes beyond my particular expertise in terms of the new data on what is going on with children. Our study was looking at uh, just the COVID cases, all cases combined across all years, but we age standardized. So we did not specifically focus in on what's happening amongst children. The deaths are much lower among children right now, but I know that there are worrisome reports about children and about what needs to be done with testing. I also know that there are reports of different kinds of testing modalities that may be easier to do. For example, the ones that are based on saliva, but that you'll need to speak to somebody else to get the um, requisite answers. One thing I'm extremely clear about as a scientist is to speak with uh, the topics on which I have expertise and then refer those questions on which I don't. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, Dr. Krieger. Thank you very much for um, doing this. I, have a, I do would like you to address the nursing home situation. I'd like to know um, how it figured in the data that you were looking at, and also how you feel about the decision of at least the state of Massachusetts and in Cambridge as well to, um, to spend a lot of effort on testing in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Uh, sure. So uh, in the data that we were sent, we did not have specific information on nursing homes. We did have addresses, but I would be a little loath to quickly interpret those in that way. Um, and that could be a subject of a more detailed investigation. I am aware, however, that, for example, the state of in uh, Seattle, King County, which is an excellent health department that has been doing work framed around a health equity, racial justice frame for a while. They now have a dashboard up, which allows you to separate out the cases that have uh, for both infection, the testing and also for mortality um, that, and hospitalizations that allow you to, to uh, tease out who was uh, a case that was based at a residential or uh, home or, or qualified nursing uh, facility. So it is possible for states to report the data out that way. Seattle King County absolutely is, and you can just go to their county website and you'll find it under their new um, tracker that they have that takes into account also race ethnicity. So why I, I personally do not know the reason why Mass, I mean, uh, Massachusetts is having as many problems as it is apparently with regard to what's going on in the nursing homes. I have not personally studied that. I have read the accounts concerning the issues of the uh, lack of sufficient personal protective equipment, uh, lack of the appropriate staffing. These are all policy uh, issues. These are not issues about the workers per se. This is about the management and the funding and also the pay rates, because what I am aware of from one other colleague who actually has done a lot of research on what goes on in nursing homes is that often employees are not paid adequately to have that as their sole job. Therefore, they work at other places that increases the risk of potential transmission moving from one facility to another. So it's if it, this is a place where mortality is occurring at excess rates, then absolutely there needs to be more testing and also better procedures for the workforce to help take care of the people that need this care vitally and also to take care of the workers themselves. Did you have a follow-up question? Well, um, I really asked if you know what this had on your data. I mean, Massachusetts has reported that there are that something like half of the deaths in the state are occurring in nursing homes? 
in right. Canada, so which does which does report separately for long term care and of the other the rest of the population. Um, something like three of the deaths are occurring in in nursing homes and uh, assisted living. So I just wondered if you does this show up in your data that you saw? What shows up in our data is that we did one set of analyses that are in the working paper. You can see the graph there right. uh, that is age stratified. So they're still age standardized, but we did it within three age strata, zero to 64, 64, 65 to 79 and 80 plus. And you can mm -hmm. see that the biggest rise the, of, the, of the surge of just excess all-cause mortality is among the 80 plus, but it's going up in the 65 to 79 as well. But the point is, is that that's happening in the context of the communities in which people live. And that's what our data capture. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question comes from the email. He is curious in particular about household crowding. Do you have a breakdown of how prominently household crowding played into the cases you looked at and the level of household crowding that you looked at, et cetera? So household crowding is a really important variable. It's easily available from the US Census. Uh, you can get it from the decennial data and from American Community Survey. I wanna emphasize that crowding really means crowding. So that if you look at the question that's asked about household crowding in these, in these uh, surveys, you exclude, you count the number of rooms, but you exclude things like bathrooms, hallways, or foyers, or, and balconies uh, and porches. So what that means, but you count things like kitchens. So if you have a one bedroom apartment that has one bedroom, that has one living room, one dining room and one kitchen, that counts as four rooms. And the only way that that place would be considered to be crowded is if it had five or more people living in it. So that's a lot of people. So what we did is we looked at that variable crowding and what it shows is that there's a very, if you are in the high crowding quintile, the, the, the top 20 percentile of households for crowding, then yes, there is a marked surge in what the mortality is. And that makes sense because household crowding is part of the mechanism of transmission. It's where people are being exposed and can't self-isolate. Do you take age, the age of the people living in the households into account as well for crowding? Do they, are children considered the same as adults or are they? Yes, in the census definition, it's, it's the number of persons independent of age that are occupying that set of, and this is about occupied housing units, by the way. So this does not include a measure of crowding within institutions, for example. So it doesn't, if you're in an institutional facility, including for example, a jail or prison, this doesn't count this is not a crown of that. This is a count of occupied housing units. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks for doing this. Um, and I appreciate the extensive overview. That was really informative. Um, your study in some respects reflects known disparities in health and life expectancy. Um, multiple studies going back several years and, and data that goes back decades. Um, disparities based on race, income, and geography, and, and so forth. Is it fair to say that scientists uh, in your field and even the federal government knew that uh, this was likely to happen with COVID-19? I have not personally seen the uh, pandemic preparedness plan that was apparently issued in 2019, so I do not know how that document did or did not address health inequities in relation to 
uh, pandemic preparedness. So I can't answer that question. Did people who were uh, social epidemiologists and others who are active in concerns around health equity have a clue that once the pandemic started happening, this could be a problem? Yes, and you can see that reflected in initial blogs that started appearing probably with all fairness, like beginning sort of of March. So I would say that, I, I mean, I have not seen a ton of public writing about that before that. And that was again in more a blog format. And then I'd say it, that really started to crescendo as the data began to become clear. Um, and because what this depended on is knowing the means of transmission. I mean, that's really crucial. And that was only just getting figured out in terms of what the potentials for uh, domestic transmission was were going to look like. So I would say that it's not these, what we're reporting is not surprising. The point isn't to surprise. The point is to document for where there is need. One thing that stood out in the Globe article to me, for example, when the reporters were talking to people in different places that we indicated based on a town, city town or a zip codes characteristics where given that there probably was a surge going on that maybe not have been actually correctly reported or understood or even perceived by people if it's not actually publicized. Because in, the, in here in Massachusetts, there was a lot of attention, rightly so, for example, on Chelsea. But that's not the only community that looks like that. And the Globe reporters were able to use the data that we generated to actually talk to people in some other towns, like, for example, Medford, like, for example, Lawrence, and identify the surges that were going on that hadn't previously been discussed, which is critical for the people that live there in terms of knowing, one, what is going on, who's being affected, and two, what steps need to be taken in terms of testing, in terms of potentially contact tracing, in terms of the needs for personal protective equipment, and the need for planning around what can be done around isolation. So, so part of, again, this is not to say that this should be surprising, but if it's not documented, you don't know you have a problem. It's an old, age-old adage, no data, no problem. The way that you get attention to problems is by having the data to show they exist so that resources can be mobilized to address them. That's a core function of public health monitoring. And the study that we did is in the tradition of public health monitoring for equity. Great. Thank, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I just have a quick question. Uh, sometimes, uh, lately, I've been getting some questions about mass incarceration and how uh, the virus has been going through prisons and uh, the uh, criminal justice system. How do you think those issues could be addressed? How do you think that mass incarceration could be changed in a way that would make it safer and healthier for those who are in prison? So again, this is where I would really recommend speaking to people in terms of concrete policy recommendations. I can speak broadly from a public health standpoint and Clearly, and there are many other issues around mass incarceration health that are go well above and beyond COVID-19 um, in terms of both who is incarcerated, who should not be incarcerated, and what the health issues are of what happens with mass incarceration, not only on the health of people that are themselves individually sent to prison and or jail, but also to their families and communities that are disrupted by this. So uh, there's a much broader discussion to have about the health harms associated with mass incarceration. Here, in this particular case, it seems that there are two really key issues going on. There is what is happening to the people who are themselves incarcerated in terms of crowding, lack of access to uh, 
uh, adequate sanitation facilities in terms of running water, in terms of private bathrooms, that's obviously not happening. And in terms of closeness of contact, it's just not possible. What's happening with personal protective equipment? What's happening with, these are real concerns and there have been many issues raised that people, some, many people that have been sentenced were sentenced to prison. They were not sentenced uh, to death. And if this is going to increase the possibilities of death, this is a real problem. So that's where I know that there have been judges and others that have been very involved in these, in, engaged in these discussions along with different advocacy groups. But what can be done around personal protective equipment? What can be done around um, the improving the conditions and decreasing the crowding is a huge issue. But the other people that are being affected are the correction officers themselves. And they're the ones that are going back and forth, bringing it from the community into the prisons and back out again. And so there's also a concern about what's happening with their health. And these have to be addressed together, which gets back to improving what the working conditions are, as well as decreasing the extent of crowding. Okay, thank you. And I had another question. Um, so in your analysis, is there one population that stood out to you that you, that you were not expecting to see that was included or one that was particularly hard hit by the virus? I think what's really important is that our results show the importance of looking at all the kinds of indicators that we did. And also, by the way, not as some people do, just lumping them into one large index. So you see a very, you see the steepest excess surge in relation to percent of population of color, but you see very sharp surges in relation to poverty, in relation to racialized economic segregation, and also crucially crowded house, uh, the household crowding. So all of these things matter and they're part of getting a fuller picture. All right, looks like that may have been our last question. Uh, Dr. Krieger, do you have any uh, final words you'd like to say before we go? As I said, it's been really crucial to have journalists providing critical interpretation of the data and also being the ones that are often getting the data as per many of the different COVID-19 tracking systems that have been set up, whether working with the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Atlantic. So I really think that that's very important. I also think it is really important for journalists to step back and frame the issues of who is at risk and who is dying from the standpoint of understanding what the structural determinants are. That sounds like jargon, but it's actually really real. It's not a question of whether people are personally willing or not to wear personal protective equipment. If they're working in jobs and they're not adequately provided, they can't do that. What are the conditions at work? What are, particularly, what are the conditions at work for essential workers? The reporting that's happened uh, in the Globe, for example, about who's been affected in hospitals, remembering that it's not just the people that are directly providing healthcare, but also the janitorial staff, the shipping clerks. They've been at excess risk. So these are really important to, to frame the conditions in which people are living and working, which are well above and beyond individual personal decisions that are affecting exposure and the ability to protect oneself against exposure. They are whether you can have a job that allows you to work from home or not, whether you have a job that has sick pay that's paid or not, let alone family leave that's paid or not. And I think that one thing that COVID-19 is doing is exposing injustices that have long been known, but this is what every crisis like this does. But, and it's doing it for example, you could look at what happened with Hurricane Maria or many years before Hurricane Katrina. Those did those in particular areas. They were localized. They were devastating where they were, 
but they were localized. This is happening now across the entire country, and it's revealing what problems are both in federal as well as state and local policies and resources that are available to people to live healthy and dignified lives. So I think it's really important to step back and give that lens when reporting that this is not about personal choices. Yes, people behave. Anything that is alive is behaving. If it's not behaving, it's not alive. But how people behave, what options people have for how they behave, has everything to do in which the conditions in which they live and work. And that's really crucial. Who depends on public transportation? Who does not have a car? Who is going to therefore be more likely to be exposed? These are really important questions to keep at the forefront of the journalism and to look at what's going on with what the policies are about pays, wages, conditions of work, who's an essential worker, what the personal protective equipment is, what the policies are for people who can't work because they're ill or shouldn't work because they're ill. Um, I think we may have one last question that's squeaking in. Doctor, what you just said that will cause me to raise my hand. So many people are focused on how do we reopen, how do we reopen safely. With what you just said, it, that says to me we can't reopen safely unless we address this. Is that is that right? Correct. And would the, what you described earlier, uh, testing sites that people can be comfortable going to, treatment uh, opportunities for isolation, all of that is part of reopening? Absolutely. I mean, Without, I think it's important to be clear that there is not a contradiction between public health and economic well-being. They actually go together. And having possibilities of having us as a state not open up again safely, let alone the country, which is a much more complicated proposition, and having more waves of devastating infection and disease and death, crashing out hospital systems is not a good idea crashing out the healthcare workers, because it's not like hospital systems and the healthcare systems are just a matter of money. They're a matter of trained personnel. And it's really important that this is why, this is one of the many reasons people all around the world always end up inventing things called governments to try to address these kinds of issues in a systematic way that allows integrating understanding of policies across different sectors. So there's not just an economy over here somehow and people's health over there. We live embodied. It's all happening together and it comes together in our bodies. So yes, to understand what these inequities are, they have to be addressed as part of what counts for safe opening because otherwise the infections will continue and the deaths will continue. And this is not anything that should be normalized. Back to an earlier question, this is because also where this is different than, for example, diabetes or cardiovascular disease, is that this is a disease where, and it's also different from example, what some people were making as analogies early on, well, a lot of people die of car crashes. Well, when a car crashes, it's terrible and it can kill the people inside, more likely it kills the pedestrians outside, but then it doesn't turn around again and kill the healthcare providers. This is a different thing, this is an infectious, respiratory disease capable of being transmitted by asymptomatic people. Thank you, doctor. This concludes the May 11th press conference.